Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Why Though, a personal journey through my record collection. This is the show that asks that most important of all questions, why is this record in my collection? And is it any good? My name is Benjamin Jacobs, the confused owner of the records and host of the show. This is episode 7, self-titled EP by The Alarm. I purchased this album for $2 at Princeton Record Exchange. Okay, let's talk about IRS records. I'm not the kind of person to wax poetical about a company, but it can't be denied that between the 1950s and the 2000s, there were a series of small record companies founded by people with a certain artistic or social vision that changed the shape of pop music. The best known, for very good reasons, was Motown Records, but there were many others. Discord and Nitro Records were founded to promote the local punk scenes in Washington, D.C. and California, respectively. Fueled by Ramen specialized in indie and emo acts and was very important for a while there. And Barsook Records is, as far as I can tell, intended as a social security plan for aging indie rockers. Kiss kiss, love you guys. Many of these na labels had a certain narrative arc. Founded by a scrappy young visionary, they signed a bunch of exciting bands and through hard work and immense enthusiasm, they managed to help make themselves and the bands into major success stories. Ultimately, however, the house always wins, and the labels are either bought out by a major label, or they completely collapse due to financial mismanagement from corruption or lack of administrative experience, or some exciting combination of the two. Another big issue for scene-specific labels is changing tastes in the public. A notable exception to this story is Discord, which as far as I know continues to chug along as an independent label under the benevolent rule of indie rock god-king Ian McGuy, long may he reign. In any case, IRS Records was the latter kind of label, the kind that fully burned out. But oh boy, were they fun while they lasted. Founded by Miles Copeland, the son of a CIA agent, they cultivated an image of being slightly unhinged. And it was probably a little bit more than just an image. The company was a labyrinthine conglomeration of holding companies and shell companies and distribution companies spanning the Atlantic, but they all had names like Faulty Products Records and No Speak Records. The key point about them was that they specialized in what might broadly be called New Wave or Post-Punk, with a smattering of ska for flavor. These were the descendants of those art student punk rockers from New York and London. The bands had the energy and ethos of punk, but made music that was just weird. And I like weird. Basically, if you got a record from IRS, it was going to be some kind of exciting. Amongst the bands in their stable were the Fine Young Cannibals, Boingo Boingo, the Dead Kennedys, the Lords of the New Church, amongst many, many others. Notably, Miles Copeland was the manager and brother of the drummer of a little outfit known as The Police, whom we will be talking about in later episodes. IRS went downhill as the 80s came to a close, partly due to some financial stuff, but mostly due to changing tastes in music as much as anything else. Still, 
they managed to hold on until 1996 before completely going belly up. In the interim, they did as much as any other label for the scene, except in their case, they were working on an international scale. Beyond signing and promoting tons of great artists, they sponsored a show that in its early stages was called IRS Records Presents The Cutting Edge on a little network called MTV. This obvious bit of payola allowed them to showcase some of their many acts. But more importantly, as the show concept evolved and, you know, IRS took a step back, this idea that they had started out cultivating turned into the late and, in my case, very much lamented 120 minutes. That was a show that showcased music videos by anyone sort of outside the musical mainstream, and which had a disproportionate impact on my taste in music during its dying days. Finally, the key thing about IRS Records, and the reason to talk about them today, is their amazing compilation albums. Now, to be clear, all record companies did, and most of them still do, compilation albums. Certainly at the time, it was a major thing. These were albums featuring a song or two from the top acts in the label's stable. There are promotional materials for the most part, sent to radio stations and the like, but people who subscribed to the label's catalog could order them as well, which would let them sample a wide variety of acts in the stable while only paying for one album. In the days before streaming media, this was obviously kind of an efficiency and a godsend. Also worth noting, check out the brand loyalty of the time implied by people subscribing to a record label's catalog. Not really done these days. So, all record companies did this. But like the label itself, IRS record compilations were always very extra. Obviously, the music was good given their roster, but the album featured unique paper-cut album art, intense lyric sheets, everything to make a record store guy's heart do a little pirouette in the air above their head. I found one of these CDs in Princeton Record Exchange fairly early in my perusal of that establishment. So let's say the mid to late 90s or so. The album was called These People Are Nuts, and it is, to me, a classic in the genre of compilation album, full of the very best of IRS's superbly curated Weird Stable. Amongst the songs on the album was The Stand by The Alarm. Several years later, I found The Alarm's EP on vinyl at Princeton Record Exchange, and so I got it, which is why we are here today. Now, what can I tell you about The Alarm apart from their record label? Well, they are from Wales, and they are sort of famous as Welsh musicians, so... Okay, I guess now we need to talk about Wales for a minute. Back in my youth, I was a big fan of Celtic music. The reasons that I, a young Jewish man, got into Celtic music are complex and best left for another episode. Suffice to say, I am well-versed in the tradition, at least as it existed in the 90s. What is notable about this genre is that you will find a ton of Irish music in this genre, and a ton of Scottish music in this genre, and you will find a lot of contributions from the diaspora in general but Welsh music is fairly thin on the ground. At the Celtic festivals I used to attend regularly, you would definitely see space made for the Welsh in terms of identity and iconography. This was an era of pan-Celtic nationalism in a certain sense, but it was very rare to find Welsh musicians on the rosters of any of the concerts. This is particularly weird, as Welsh music is well regarded in the historical record. So, what's up with this? Let's go back to the 1850s or so, the time when nationalism was really being built up in Scotland and, to a lesser extent, Ireland, and sort of across Europe, really. Which is to say, in Scotland, society was rapidly modernizing. There was a conscious attempt by Scottish intellectuals to identify what was unique about Scottish culture, preserve it, and begin building up a concept of Scottishness amongst the people of Scotland. 
Not that they weren't Scottish before, but it was a thing that just was, and that they didn't really think about it, and they didn't have any kind of definition of what being Scottish was. As it happened, there were lots of different ways to be Scottish, as there are in most regions in the world. Lowland Scots did Scottish in a very different way from Highland Scots, and the different parts of the Highlands and Islands did Scottishness different from each other. In many ways, and as is common in this kind of process across the world, the creation of Scottish nationalism was a sort of cultural centralization of the idea of Scottishness, ironically built around the peripheral traditions of the heretofore scorned Highlanders and Islanders. In Ireland, there was a bit less work needed in terms of codifying the identity. 500 years of unrest and persecution had done that very nicely. Still, Ireland engaged in this process as well, as local intellectuals and leaders started the Gaelic games and similar cultural associations to help foster their identity. And music obviously played a role there as well. In England, a process of self-identification had been underway for some time, but when you got into the Victorian era, ideas about racial superiority got tossed into the pot. The quote-unquote Anglo-Saxons of England started to justify their sitting on top of the political heap of the empire in these terms. Needless to say, the Scots and Irish responded by holding up their Celtic racial heritage as a thing that made them special and awesome, unlike the mean British who were always coming into their countries and messing things up. And then there's Wales. To summarize horribly, the Welsh didn't really have a very fractious relationship with the crown of England after, say, the 1300s. Before then, there was a lot of wars, but when we get into the early modern period, Welsh nobles had a lot of power in the English court, since they were the only noble families allowed to keep standing armies, along with the nobles along the Scottish border. This brought Welsh people into contact with political power, but it also meant that the royal family had a stake in fostering good relations with the people of Wales to counterbalance the powerful nobles. Under the Tudors, who were themselves part Welsh, this strategy intensified, ultimately culminating with Elizabeth who went against the wishes of Parliament and had a Welsh-language edition of the Bible printed to encourage the spread of Protestantism in Wales, while also protecting Welsh language and traditions within the new Protestant cultural sphere. This strategy of bringing the Welsh on board by protecting their traditions is notably opposed to the strategy indulged in by the Tudors in terms of their ethnic cleansing of the Highlands and Islands, and uh, to a certain extent Ireland as well. So, for the Welsh, being closely associated with royal power and with England was, oddly enough, the best way for them to protect their Welsh identity. This didn't last, as, of course, it wasn't a walk in the park the entire way down. As royal power fell away in the face of parliamentary pressure, the Welsh were exposed to more and more centralizing legal pressure from Westminster. But then again, by this time, the Welsh had insinuated themselves strongly into the parliamentary system as well. One of the features of the old unreformed parliament was that the Welsh were strongly overrepresented, which worked out well for them at counterbalancing the population dominance of England. So it really wasn't until modern times that Welsh culture began to really face pressure from England. Notable moments in this process are when populist Welsh politicians like Lloyd George forced parliament to build public schools in Wales. This was good for the individuals in Wales, but as it happened, these schools ended up teaching exclusively in English. And this, when combined with the rise of radio as a form of mass media dominated by English language programming, slowly strangled the Welsh language. Today, Welsh is actually bouncing back, but the language was on an extinction shortlist for much of the late 20th century. One other factor to notice is the spread of Protestantism in Wales, uh, notably charismatic Methodism. As I said before, this helped preserve the Welsh language, but as with many forms of Protestantism at the time, it was a fairly dour outlook on life, 
and it branded all forms of human pleasure as sin, with the result that any music that was not church music was frowned upon, and dancing was of course forbidden. In Ireland and Scotland, music and dancing are two of the chief hallmarks of Celtic culture, but in Wales these were heavily circumscribed. It's notable that much of what survived in Wales was preserved by Romani travelers, who adopted the popular music of the area they worked in while blithely ignoring the religious authorities. As for the mainstream of Welsh society, their music did survive to a certain extent in terms of choral music, which of course was totally acceptable at church, but which did away with a lot of traditional instrumentation. To a large extent within English culture, the Welsh became famous for the quality of their choral music. Another key factor in the way Welsh culture relates to English culture is just that a lot of the stuff that makes up Welsh culture was appropriated by the English as part of the English and Victorian nation-building efforts. For example, stories about King Arthur definitely originated in Wales, but the English adopted this symbol of nativist holy monarchy as their own. And while Irish and Scottish music was derided, Welsh vocal harmonies were loved by the English media and adopted into the popular music of the time. All of which is to say that Wales had a very different relationship with nationalism during the critical period of the 1850s to 1900s. Not that Wales didn't do any identity building at that time, it certainly did. It's just that identity was built around different kinds of things, and those things were kind of difficult to disentangle from mainstream English culture if you didn't know what you were looking for. There was just a lot of stuff about druids and communing with fairies and King Arthur, and not so much about hating England. Ultimately, it was the enthusiasm of the hippies in the 1960s that would really revive Welsh music and cultural traditions at large, as well as changing government policies towards the language. Welsh pressure was one of the key factors behind the devolution process begun under Margaret Thatcher. Again, while Thatcher was busy stoking anti-Irish bigotry and closing down Scottish industries and mines to get political gains, the establishment of a local government in Wales allowed for the establishment of Welsh-language radio and TV stations that have led to that strong modern revival of Welsh as a language. For whatever reason, the Welsh relationship with the metropole was always less contentious, more friendly, and led to assimilation in ways that are very difficult to untangle if you're an outsider to the situation. So on the one hand, Welsh music sort of doesn't fit in with the other two big nations of the Celtosphere. It doesn't help that the language is notably from a different branch of the Celtic language family. So while Scottish and Irish are often somewhat mutually intelligible, Welsh is very not. This is not to say that Wales isn't welcome to the party, just that when they show up, they're not really singing songs about fighting the British or how much they hate Thatcher, and that sort of limits their popularity outside of Wales. On the other hand, Wales, in many ways, just got a later start. While Ireland and Scotland had powerful nationalist projects with a lot of energy behind them for over 100 years, in Wales, the threat to their culture wasn't really obvious to most Welsh people until the 1940s or so, and many of the structural things that had degraded Welsh music notably the Methodist Church, were active and popular parts of Welsh culture. It really is only in the last few decades that the enthusiasm and resources have emerged to start working on bringing the music forward and the dance and the other elements of culture that make up a culture. The results have been the gradual growth of popularity of Welsh music again, notably in Wales itself, but increasingly outside as well. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So what is Welsh music like? It's kind of like the Welsh language in that it bears a strong family resemblance to the other two main branches of the Celtic music traditions but is distinct in some key ways that are very noticeable to those familiar with these traditions. I should say I am by no means an expert, so take all this with a grain of salt. But in any case, this is how I understand it. Vocal singing remains the strongest part of Welsh music traditions, for reasons that I've mentioned before. Three-row harp is also a very important part of the remaining tradition. Beyond that, they have their own versions of the usual Celtic music instruments, like bagpipes and compositional patterns, like jigs. A notable feature here in terms of composition, if you know your music theory, is that there's a lot less reliance on modal scales, which makes the music sound less Celtic-y and a bit more classical. One last point. American country western music has attained major popularity, notably in Scotland, but in the entire British Isles as well. To me, the most absurd example is that there is an Irish TV station that runs an Irish-language country western show called Glore Tyre. This is worth noting partly because of the heavy influence of Scots-Irish music forms on that genre, which can make it very hard to disentangle influences when a band starts mixing and matching. When you factor in the large influence of Irish and Scottish music across the English-speaking world from the 1950s on, it all just gives me a headache. So you may wonder why all this is relevant. Well, our band for today, The Alarm, are considered a major part of the story of the revival of Welsh music in the late 20th century by music historians at least in terms of working as a catalyst for the later parts of the process. In this episode and the next, we will see if I can discern this as a dumb American listening to the two albums I have of their music with very limited knowledge of Welsh folk traditions. So, on to the band itself. The Alarm sort of slowly came together through various iterations in Wales over the course of the late 70s, with the first iteration being a punk band called The Toilets, which I think we can all agree is a great name for a punk band. They experimented with a variety of different iterations and genres, notably including a power pop period and a The Who cover band. The final iteration was as a rock group with significant influences from traditional Welsh music. This all happened between 1979 and 1981. In 1981, this new uh, outfit, as a mixed rock and Welsh traditional music outfit, moved to London, and they worked on their sound and made money playing gigs around town. This included opening for an act you might have heard of called The Fall, which got them noticed and eventually signed by IRS Records in 1982. If you haven't heard of The Fall, that's for another time, but if you have heard of The Fall, 
doesn't it just make sense that playing at a the fall show got them signed to IRS records? Like that's just perfect. Anyway, at the time they were signed, they were not exactly settled into their role as rock stars. They had not really decided for certain who was going to play which instruments, and so at their shows there was a lot of switching off as they went along. At shows they would do acoustic songs for the first half of their set and finish the second half with traditional rock instruments. This kind of became a hallmark of how they did performances. At some point around this time, the band of Irish rockers, U2, noticed them and sort of adopted them as protégés, and they would have them open for their gigs. This culminated in 1983, when U2 took the alarm on tour with them in the United States. At this time, the alarm didn't actually have an album out. IRS Records knew that they needed to have something to build buzz at local radio stations and sell at merch tables in the United States, and so they slapped together today's five-song EP just before that tour. The album is a compilation of singles and demos recorded by the band one by one over the course of the previous two years. Basically, whenever they could get a little studio time, they would work on songs, practice, and maybe record a song or two. These songs were bundled together and shoved out into the American market where the EP basically died. No radio attention, no buzz, just a total faceplant. I'm going to end their bio here for today, as we have a second album by them for next time to let me finish up the story of their career. So the EP was a flop, but at least they had something to sell at shows. So, how does it sound? The standout track on this album is The Stand, pun intended. This was the song from the compilation album that made me buy this record in the first place, and it's pretty great. The song makes heavy use of acoustic instruments and harmonica in a way that evokes country-western music. The song's structure is easily the most open of the songs on the album, while still retaining strong pop hooks and a great driving rhythmic march. The bass lines and drumming are excellent, and the backing vocals are used to great effect in telling the song's story. If all the songs on the album were like this, I could easily see the influence of traditional Welsh music on their repertoire, since many of the tonal choices sound Celtic-y, and the background vocals do cool things with harmonies that I have been led to expect from Welsh music over the years. Unfortunately, the story the song is telling is the story of The Stand by Stephen King. I say unfortunately because in that context, it's just a little on the nose. Western musical choices, the lyrics, it's not mysterious or strange, it's just Stephen King's story in song form. So that's a little disappointing. Disappointment is kind of going to be a bit of a theme of the rest of this episode. The other songs on the album are not like The Stand. It's basically a one-off, and since I bought the album for this song, I am inevitably a bit disappointed just off the get-go. On my first pass, my feeling was that the album sounded like nothing so much as U2. Basic song structures, a good sense of melody, an honestly impressive rhythmic section, but just ho-hum in terms of songwriting. Most of the emphasis is on the vocal delivery of lyrics, which are avowedly political in nature. We've got a song on the Troubles in Northern Ireland, a song about land use rights, etc. These are not vague and general songs about how the military is bad and my parents are mean. These are very specific and largely well-thought-out policy documents, which is the kind of thing I usually appreciate, and I do. But while the lead singer is very good, they don't make too much use of backing vocals to develop harmonies, which is an odd choice for a band repping for the traditional music of the quote-unquote land of song. Frankly, everything about this is a little weird and not what I was expecting. I get that they hung out a lot and U2 liked their music, and yes, U2 would go on to be very famous, but in the period when the alarm was forming, it's not like U2 were the superstars that they became. They were famous, they had a successful, well-regarded album under their belt, but that album was very rough and early, 
It was very influenced by punk and even more so by traditional Irish music, as filtered through the Edge's blues guitar noodling. The album War, which was to be U2's breakthrough album, had not yet been released. And yet here we have an EP by The Alarm that sounds like U2. To give you some idea, listen to the chord progressions in Marching On by The Alarm, and then I Will Follow by U2. I mean, they're really similar songs. There are differences in instrumentation, and lyrics are all different. But I Will Follow came out in 1980, and Marching On was recorded sometime around 1982. So, this is pretty clear. I'm not sure how U2 heard this right night after night on the tour and was like, cool, it's cool they're copying us. That's neat. So the first thing to say generally is that these guys copied U2. And given that U2 has, uh, let's say, worn out their welcome as far as I'm concerned, this is not a great place for me to start from. But I must persist, because there is still a clear question I'm trying to answer here. Their reputation is as a sort of Welsh U2. So now we understand the U2 part of that reputation, but do they bring anything Welsh to the party? It is frustratingly hard to say based on this album alone. There are little flares here and there that suggest elements of a folk tradition being drawn upon. A chromatic progression there, an interesting harmony here. But for a band famous for half-acoustic shows, there isn't a lot of acoustic stuff happening here, and not a ton of traditional instrumentation. The songs have great energy and are definitely not boring. But there's also a clear country-western influence here, which makes me wonder if the interesting folky bits I'm hearing are not a Welsh take on American music, a thought that makes my head hurt. Most of it, though, is just sort of bland pop songs. A big issue here may be that because Welsh music was so deeply appropriated by English music, and because a lot of modern pop music is heavily influenced by English pop music, there could be stuff going on here that sounds very Welsh to those in the know, but which isn't obvious to an outsider. I just, I really don't know what to do with these guys at this point. They seem like huge bandwagon jumpers to me right now. Were they just afraid to let their Welsh freak flag fly this early in their career? Niche music wasn't maybe as big then as it would get later. The one really positive thing that I have to say for them is that their rhythm section is really, really good. The bass lines are very sophisticated, the drummer brings in some very good, eclectic drum patterns that you definitely don't usually hear in rock songs. I should also say, the lyrics aren't like clever or poetic or any of the things I am usually drawn to, but the text is well scanned and works at delivering the message they're going for. I appreciate the specificity of the subject matter, and I like a good political song. Writing political songs without them turning corny is actually a very difficult row to hoe, and it is nice to return to a time when musicians knew things about the world other than how to write songs. Sure, they'd indulge in some both-sidism, but like when you're talking about Northern Ireland in the 1980s, that's entirely understandable. The songs are neither so straightforward as to be preachy, nor so artsy and symbolic that you can't figure out what they're singing about. Looking at you, shins. So, you know, a solid A- on lyrics. The other thing to say is that, you know, this is an EP of songs composed by a band still coming together and finding their feet. It isn't clear to me how much, if at all, this represents their wider body of work. And I guess it's worth saying that it grew on me with repeated listenings. To the point that I took a few days off before finishing the script to try and make up my mind about how I felt. As far as the album art goes, it's meh. It's not great. It's not entirely off-putting. There's no lyrics sheet. The one noticeable thing is that the hairstyles of the 1980s were notoriously bad, and it hit these guys real hard. Everyone's hair is teased up into these two-foot-high tangles. It makes me wonder whether they sat there getting their hair done like that every morning before they left the house, or just before shows, or did they just do it for the album? So, I guess to round this out, the self-titled EP by The Alarm is interesting on a variety of levels. 
Unfortunately, most of that interest has nothing really to do with the direct music on the record. The album Backstory tells us interesting things about where Welsh music was in the 1980s, and about the culture at IRS Records. Musically, there's definitely a lot of talent here, and a faint glimpse at deeper musical tradition. But it seems like they were trying really hard to follow a trail that U2 was blazing, almost to the point of copyright infringement. They seem timid about doing their own thing. The best song is definitely The Stand, and really that is just them soundtracking a short story, which is kind of a shame. That said, they're not bad songwriters. There's a lot of fun stuff on this album, and it's not like this is offensive. I really like their ability in terms of political songs. That's kind of a genre that we don't do anymore, and I kind of like it. Really, we're going to have to wait for next month to see what the first full-length album is like to actually make a decision here. As we wrap up, I'd just like to take a minute for some housekeeping. As you know, this show is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, a collective of intelligent, educational podcasts. This month, we are promoting actually something being done by Andrew, my editor. He has put together a pilot episode for a contest being run by iHeartRadio. There will be a link in the show notes to go check it out. Please go listen, and if you like it, vote for it. It's a show about the life of Alexandre Dumas, and that guy had a very interesting life, so go check it out. I'd also like to thank you for listening. If you're enjoying what you hear and you think I might deserve some recompense for my time, please consider heading over to the website and becoming a patron or a donor. As of right now, I don't have any patrons or donors for Why Though, specifically, which means I'm losing money on this project, despite the fact that I don't need to buy any research materials. Nonetheless, I am doing this for fun, so if you don't have any money to contribute, or if you are already helping out with Wittenberg to Westphalia, no big deal. But do feel free to get in touch and let me know how I'm doing. Positive feedback helps keep fumes in the tank. So the songs on this EP turn out to all be included on the band's first full-length album, The Declaration, which also happens to be the only other album by The Alarm which I own, which is a bit depressing. If this EP was so lukewarm, I don't have great hopes for next episode. But this is the format I chose, so you and I will all have to endure together. Edit. This is me from the future, working on the next episode's script. I didn't have anything to worry about. So, tune in next time. In any case, you'll get to hear my review of the rest of the songs on this album in a month's time. I have to say, I'm really curious about the career trajectory of The Alarm. That episode is likely to be very interesting, even if the record might be a bit meh. As usual, there will be a link in the show notes if you want to listen along to that next album, as well as the songs I referenced in this episode and this album, if you haven't already listened. So, as always, I must bid you a fond farewell, and hope that you find the answers that you seek in your record collection. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.